this amazing love that you would die for us, that you would lay down your life, that you would take our sin, and in exchange for our sin, you would give us your righteousness. What else could we say? Oh my goodness. Hallelujah. Amen. Lord, thank you. But I'm praying just now that our 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 amens, our thank yous, our our gratitude would not just be a verbal expression on the Lord's Day in church, but my life would be an amen. My my attitude, my interaction with those I know, with strangers, with people that that, that I'm close to and, and people not so close, that that there would be this this joy that Christ has taken my old life and replaced my old wicked heart with a righteous heart and given me new life because of this new heart. There's a joy now. There's a peace. There's an other-centeredness. The old self-centeredness has been crucified. God, help us to understand that. that our best thanks is not verbal. It's visual. The lives that we live and the, the way we behave and the, the brightness of our eyes and the smiles on our faces, the joy in our hearts and the, the good Samaritan-like other-centeredness the lives that we live. God, may that be our best thank you for all that you've done for us. Would you open our minds, our hearts, our souls to your word now this morning. Help us in this classic, well-known, old, not just for Sunday school kids story. Help us to get some great applicable truth out of the story of David and Goliath. Please, Lord. I'm asking now that you would speak clearly to us and encourage us by your word. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. Open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. Make your way to chapter 16. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, chapter 16. And let's walk through this great classic story of David and Goliath. I will tell you up front, here's the whole sermon in a sentence, maybe two. Maybe, maybe it shouldn't be the story of David and Goliath. Perhaps it should be the story of David and Saul. S-A-U-L. David and Saul. Saul was the first king. He was the popular vote. He was the king that the people had selected. People go to Samuel. Samuel is that, that, that in-between He's, he's not one of the judges, but he functions as a judge. He's not a king, but he functions as a king. He's this, he's this transition guy from the days of the judges to the time of the kings. And the people had gone to Samuel and said, we, we want a king so that we could be like all the other nations. Catch that motive. So that we could be like all the other nations. They were caught that. It's not just middle school kids, it's every human being. We're looking at someone else, oh, I wish I could be like them. As handsome as them, as smart as them, as wealthy as them, 
as loved as them as left alone, as they get to be left alone. Maybe that's your aspiration. We're looking at someone else and wish I had their life. Israel was looking at all the other nations. Yeah, I know God is our king, but we can't see him. And I know that our grandfathers, the manna fell. Yeah, we got all the stories, but, but we want to be like all the other nations. So they go to Samuel, and Samuel says, God, I think they're making a big mistake. And God says, well, they are, Samuel, but go ahead. Go ahead, let them run their course. That's a liberal, liberal translation, but that's in essence what occurs. And sure enough, they select King Saul. Saul has been wrong from the beginning. Nothing right about his reign. And you'll see that this morning. God now is about to make a transition. Chapter 16, verse 1, God says, okay, okay, enough of Saul. Now I will choose for myself. Now I will choose for myself a king. So Samuel, quit grieving. Quit crying. I let this happen to prove a point. And the point has been made. Everyone's now disgusted with their favorite guy. You got what you wanted. Now you're unhappy. Well, I'll provide now my choice. That's how David is introduced into the story. Look at verse 7. Chapter 16 and verse 7. Samuel has been sent by God to Jesse's house. Now you may remember the name Obed and Jesse. The very end of Judges last week. Jesse is the father to David. He's about to be father to the king of Israel. Jesse has a number of sons. And so God says to Samuel, go to Jesse's house. I'm about to pick for myself a new king. A king of my choosing. It's going to be one of Jesse's sons. So Samuel gets there and says to Jesse, okay, bring in all the boys. God is about to pick one of your sons to be the king of Israel. Can you imagine Jesse's pride? Wow. Wow. So he lines up all of the sons, at least the older ones, but he doesn't even bother to bring young David in for this evaluation. David does take care of the sheep. And so Samuel's working his way through. This one, no prompting from the Lord. Next one, next one, next one. Nothing from God. No indication. No stirring. No fluttering. However you think you discern the presence of God and the promptings of God. However God communicated with Samuel. Nothing. Nothing. And he says to Jesse, saw your voice? Oh, well, David. Little, little, you know, what, what's David now? Is he, is he 14? Is he 16? He's taking care of the sheep. Surely. And, and, and Samuel says, well, you better get him in here. So David comes in and God speaks and Samuel says, he's the one. He's the one. And he's anointed that day to be the next king of Israel. Saul's still alive, still sitting on the throne. But David is now God's chosen. Verse 13 and 14, I think, are the key to the whole three chapters before us. 16, 17, and 18. I'm not saying that Goliath is meaningless to this story. Clearly is not meaningless. But I really think, in my personal humble opinion, that Goliath is nothing more than a representation of the mentality of, we need a king like Saul. He's tall, he's handsome, 
people listened to him. Saul and Goliath represent the best of our flesh. Physical strength. Academic superiority. Good looks. Winsome personalities. We're drawn to all of that. These people were natural born leaders. And God picks a shepherd? It's that, it's that confluence. It's, it's that contradiction. It's, wait a second, wait a second. You want us to go with this guy when we've got this guy. And that's what these three chapters are all about. So Goliath is a player in the story. But he's there only to represent what God is now rejecting. I want you to catch that. I want you to catch that. And I'm not just going to pick a few verses that, that lead towards my inclination. I, I think it'll just jump out of the page for you and you'll say, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. This is what God is saying to us. We're still in chapter 16. Look at verse 13 and then verse 14. Chapter 16 and verse 13 says this. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So I don't know how old David was. I don't think he was 8 or 9. But he's not 25. He's not a trained military warrior. We'll see why that's important in just a minute. He's a shepherd. But Samuel anoints him. The oil, the same kind of oil that would be poured on a priest, it represents the coming of the Holy Spirit. That God is with you. It's very dramatic. It's ceremonial. People say, oh, he got anointed. Well, I'm not mocking that, but, but in essence, it's, it's what happens to us when we're born again. That the Spirit of God comes. If you've been born again, if, if, if you've said, okay, I take the hands off my life. I, I don't trust myself to run my life. I give my life to you, Jesus. I believe you paid for my sins. I trust you with not only my, my ultimate future, eternity. I trust you from this day forward. You're the Lord of my life. When that happens, the Holy Spirit comes. We're anointed. That's what's happening to David here for position. I would imagine that David has had his equivalent of, of a salvation experience. He's born of the Spirit sometime prior to this. This anointing is for the job of being king. Saul has already been anointed for the job of being king, but I'm not convinced that Saul knows God at all. He may know him academically, got a few verses here and there about God, but Saul knows nothing about walking with God. Saul knows nothing about the heart of God. Saul knows absolutely nothing about the ways of God. And if you think I'm being too harsh or too hasty, well, look at verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Verse 13, it comes on David. But verse 14, it departs from Saul. If the Bible's clear about anything, it's clear about a number of things, but, but one high on that list is when the Spirit of God comes, He represents life. He is our life. 
And that life, the Bible tells us, is eternal. That life is eternal. So whatever Saul had, and I believe it was an unction, an anointing, a power to be king. But clearly, you're not my choice of king. And you're not even worked out for the people who said they loved you and wanted you. So I'm withdrawing my administrative power. I'm withdrawing my giftedness on your life, Saul, and you're out. This little silly, not silly, but this young overlooked shepherd boy is in. And King Saul, for all of your beauty and your presence, you're out. The Spirit of God comes on David in verse 13. The Spirit of God leaves Saul in verse 14, but that's not all that happens in verse 14. You see it? An evil spirit, and here's some uncomfortable words for you, an evil spirit from the Lord comes on Saul. Wow. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that, that, that God is some kind of split personality dichotomy I think the language is simply saying this, that even the demons are subject to the will of God. And he can prevent them from going, or he can release them and set them to go. I thank God for not only what he's given me in my life, but what he's prevented from coming to me in my life. And here he releases even demons. Wow, this is kind of scary, weird stuff. Saul is out. David's in. And it's not a personality thing. I just don't like you. And this is a nice young kid, so we're going with him. So, so unbelievably much deeper than that. And I want you to catch that in these chapters. 16, 17, and 18. Let's go to chapter 17. I want to read a bit with you here. Chapter 17, I just want you to catch this. Start with me in verse 4. I'm going to read a little bit. Chapter 17 and verse 4. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath from the town of Gath. His height is six cubits in a span. That's nine feet, nine inches. Nine feet, nine inches. I, I like to watch basketball. I used to think I could play basketball. A lot of self-deception there. I've been around some seven-footers in my life. I ain't never seen anybody nine feet nine. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of that coat was 5,000 shekels. 5,000 shekels is somewhere between 60, 65 pounds. Just this, this coat that he wore to keep spears and arrows from penetrating him. Just that is an extra 65 pounds. It goes on to describe his spear. Verse 6, he had bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer goes before him carrying the shield. 
He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come up, come out rather to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. He is able to fight with me and kill me. Then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And then Goliath said this in verse 10. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. You people are nothing. We give you no respect. I'm here saying you're nothing. I dare you. I challenge you. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now here's Saul. The king that everyone loved and wanted. This is our guy. When Goliath shows up, this is what Saul says. Verse 11. He was dismayed and greatly afraid. I don't know what kind of stories roll through your mind about courage and standing up when everyone else is turning and running away. You may have some World War II stories. Our generation is young enough, now old enough. We remember those those World War II stories, and they may be vivid in your mind. Maybe you have some of those recollections from things you've heard or read, Civil War stories, or, or other moments of great courage when everyone else is running away, and someone or a few say, no, no, we're not, we're, we're not running. Someone thinks we're worth dying for. We don't think we're going to die, but if we die, we'll die here today. We're not running. We're not running anymore. That's the difference between Saul and David. And every one of us, at various times in our lives, have to ask, what am I going to do? Yeah. I'm going to stand up? Or as the phrase was used when I was a boy, am I going to turn tail and run? What, what am I going to do? You're probably familiar with the phrase, that's every man's decision. Well, it's every person's. This is not a male thing. And I, I think testosterone makes us show off more than others. But all of us have this, these, these salient, life-determining moments. And this is one of them. And King Saul has once again failed miserably. He is dismayed. That means, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't have a plan. There is no plan B. I, I'm overwhelmed. I'm scared to death. I don't know what to do. He is dismayed. And he is not just a little afraid. He is greatly afraid. So this whole myth about one fighting one, and when those two are done, everyone else gets to go home, is a myth. You'll see the reverse of it in just a minute. Because when David kills Goliath, the army of Israel say, Okay, let's go home. They rush the army of the Philistines and they conquer them. And the reverse would have happened had Goliath killed whoever Saul would have saved. But it's not just Saul that's afraid. All the other soldiers afraid. Because then I'm saying, I'll go. I'll go. No one is stepping up. No one is lifting their voice. No one is saying, don't worry about it, team. I've got this. Not 
a soul until David. We'll get to him in just a bit. So when you face the Goliaths of your life, and that's typically how the sermon gets unfolded. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that. But this is more than just a little nice Sunday school story for, for boys and girls to not be afraid in life when the hardships come. But that application can be made as a point of reinforcement. Well, so what's going on in your life? What's scaring you? Loss of health? Loss of income? Loss of employment? What, what's scaring you? I'm so far behind. This pandemic is so wrecked. I don't, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. What, what giants? What intimidation? What? So here's what's going on in these days. Well, first David speaks to the soldiers. Then he speaks to his brother, his old brother Eliab. And then finally he speaks to King Saul. And we'll look for those verses just now. David is there because his dad sent him, hey, all your older brothers are down at the valley. So Israel's here and and, and the Philistines are here, and down the valley between these two hillsides is where they're going to do battle. And, and, and Goliath has walked to the middle of this valley, and he's shouting to both sides, and no one is moving. And David hears all this, and he sees all this. And he is at least perceptive enough to know, how come my brother and all these other Israelite soldiers are scared to death? Because the king is scared to death. So, pick up the reading in 24, 17 and verse 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. And the people said, have you seen this man? This man who's come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills Goliath with riches and give him his own daughter and make his father's house tax-free in Israel. And David says to those people, saying that stuff, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? Now it sounds like he's simply repeating what he's heard the other soldiers say. I don't think that's what's happening at all. I think what David is saying here in, in where am I in, in verse 26, I think he's saying, so, so that's the only reason you're going to fight this guy? To get money from the king and marry his daughter and your mom and dad go tax-free? That's what drives your life? When he repeats the offer, you may not want to call it a bribe. Well, that's a harsh word. Well, call it whatever you want. The inducement. I think there's a serious and a deep sense of sarcasm. That's what drives you? That, that's what molds your life? What you can get out of a deal? I think that's what he's saying in verse 26. Because then he says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now there's something bigger than just getting tax-free life and marrying a beautiful woman and eating dinner at the king's table. This man is cursing our God. 
you catch his heart? Saul is trembling and greatly afraid. David said, you can't talk about our God like that. So what governs your life? What makes you angry? Do you get angry because you got disrespected? Or because God was maligned? What makes you angry? What stirs you to action? What makes you stand up when everyone else is running away? What makes you say, okay, okay, I can be courteous, but you're not going to say that. You're not going to say that. David springs to action when the name of God is defined. Not because he's trying to make some money or get married to a beautiful woman or, or hang out with the king. You, you can't say this. You, you, you can't say this. When his brother chirps in, look at verse 28, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the man, and Eliab's anger is kindled against David, and he said, what are you even doing here? Go home, you stupid little boy. That's in my translation. <laughs> Go home. Why did you come down here? And, and with whom have you left those few sheep? Remember who you are. I'm a soldier. You're a shepherd. Go mess with your stupid little sheep. Very condescending. Very condescending. I know your presumption. I know. You snuck down here. You just want to see some blood. <laughs> you, you, you want to watch a war movie on TV. You want to feel like a grown man. But you're in over your head, boy. Go home. 29. David says, and what have I done wrong? I only repeated what he already said. I, I only said what he said. I don't know what translation you're using, but in this translation I've been using the last many years, he says in verse 29, what have I done? Was it not but a word? Now in the translation you're using, the old King James, even the new King James, it may say this, is there not a cause? But in the original Hebrew it's the same thing. His words have raised a cause, an issue. And the cause isn't making money from the king putting my life at risk so I can get ahead and make some money and, and be famous. So the cause he's raised is, who is God? God of the Philistines? Or the God of God's people Israel? Who, who is God? Jehovah? Or these other idols and manufacturers of, of, of deities? That's the words he's using. Now, in America, we don't refer to people as idol worshippers because that's an ancient phrase, and, and, and the way we define things, it doesn't look like idolatry, but surely, clearly, it seems to me that affluence has become the new god of the West, not just America. We worship power. We worship money. We worship people who know how to make money. Athos has become a god. And we bought in. Let's not kid ourselves. Let's just own that. More is better. More is better. I'm not suggesting that we all cash out and live impoverished lives. When you begin to look into stuff 
and the money to get stuff as your identity and your safety, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. I know very poor people who are materialistic. And I know some very wealthy people who are not in the least bit materialistic. It has nothing to do with how much you have. It has to do with, I just have to have some more. And how do I manage what I already have? For my glory or for God's? We still wrestle with God's in our world. And the gods will compete for your loyalty. But there is one true living God who sent his son to pay for your sins. And the benefit is not you get to marry his daughter. You get a good job with the corner office on the top floor of the high rise. No, the benefit is you get to spend eternity with him in a sinless environment on a new heaven and a new earth, recreated like the Garden of Eden. We don't labor for the things of this world. So David says to his older brother Eliab, you don't, didn't you hear what he said? Did you hear his words? And do you understand what his words are saying? Do you get his cause? He's come to defy our God. He's saying that we're stupid, that Jehovah is no God. And he's going to prove it in a militaristic way. I'm going to fight, I'm going to kill you, and that proves your God is nothing. You didn't hear that, Eliab? You didn't hear that? Sometimes I say to myself, David, are you paying attention to what's being said in America these days? Are you paying attention? Don't you hear that? This isn't about what we think it's about. God and God's people are methodically being pushed to the, to the, to the edges, the fringes of culture. I'm not trying to turn this into some kind of a political rally. That's the last thing I want to get involved with. But our God is being diminished. And if we're so attached to Saul's thinking and Saul's gods, we will follow the Pied Piper down that wrong road. And David has enough spiritual discernment that he knows what's going on and he's saying to his brother, you didn't hear what he said? Do you understand what he meant by what he said? Listen to his words. Understand his cause. And then finally, he speaks to King Saul. Young David's talking like this to his brother, and he said it already to the soldiers, and word trickled back to the king. Hey, we got this stupid little boy who thinks he's, he's going to fight the, the, the giant. And so Saul says, well, bring him to me. And they take David to him, and Saul tries to put all this armor on him. Well, so everyone's got armor. Saul, the king, had armor. He got her with the guys. And we're going to fight. And so Goliath showed up, and Saul is greatly afraid. So he says to young David, here, here, take my shield and my sword and my helmet and, and take all this stuff. So can you imagine, even if he's, he, if he, even if he's close to adult size, even if he's 16, he's not 
filled out like a man. He's very lean, very slender. Doesn't look like a man. All of this unproven, untested, unfamiliar armor is very cumbersome to him. He can't function with all this. And so he speaks to Saul in verse 31, chapter 17, in verse 31. They take him. David says in verse 32, Let no man's heart fail because of that big fat liar. I hope he used harsh words like that as if you think that's harsh. <laughs> Don't be afraid of this guy. Don't let your heart sink, fail. Don't cower before this guy. This is a teenager talking to the king. Does that seem backwards here? Who should be giving leadership here? Don't let his heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with his Philistine, with this Philistine. He refers himself as your servant. Catch his sense of, of acknowledgement of arrangement of authority. Yeah, I've heard my dad and all kinds of grown men talk about you, and I ain't going to mention that right now, but I am your servant. You're still the king, and I, 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 I work in the kingdom, and I, but I, I'm not afraid of this guy. Let me go. He, but he's not talking about, I'm, I'm all that, you're nothing. I'll do it. And he's about to give his reason as to why he's willing to do it. I'll do it. I will serve you and this nation that I love. And I'll, I'll do this. I'll do it. Verse 33. You're not able. You're not able. You're but a youth. 34. He begins to recite what he is familiar with. I don't know your armor. I, I don't know your ways. I, I, haven't, I haven't been trained in all of that. But I know this. My own father entrusted me with his whole flock of sheep, many flocks. And in the process of protecting the sheep, I have literally killed the lion and I have killed the bear. Now you may think that's just poetic. I don't. I think it's absolutely literally the truth. I have killed the lion. I'm 16, 18 years old. I've killed the lion with my own hands and my slingshot and, and my staff and I would beat him and I would put a headlock I would rip his jaws apart I, I'd kill the lion and I'd kill the bear because someone was trying to take my father's sheep and now this man is trying to take our very lives this is the right king I'll, I'll stand up for this but not your way. I don't know your way. But I know my way. I'm smaller than him. I'm faster than him. I can outrun him. I can run behind him before he's able to turn around. I got a plan. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I've killed a lion. I've killed a bear. And he ain't nothing to me. I love this kid. He's not arrogant. But he knows that he's been anointed of God. Don't forget that. He remembers that the power of God is with him. This is not an overconfident teenager all filled up with testosterone and I'm working out of the gym. Let me go. This is a guy who knows that God is with him. 
God is with me. So skip down to verse 37, all the way to verse 37. The Lord delivered from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, and he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. What do you say to them? So the king said, All right, son, God bless you. God bless you. Go. Go with God. Vaya con Dios. Go with God. God bless you. Get on your way. Godspeed. You've heard that phrase, perhaps. Now, we love the confrontation. You know it well. I'm not going to retell the whole story, but, but read this with me. Look at verse 40 again. He's made the point already made. I said again, look at verse 40. So he took all of Paul's stuff. He took a staff. And he took five smooth stones. Put them in his pouch. The sling in his hand. And off he goes. So what do we have in the spiritual battle that we're engaged in? What, what do we have? Well, we have the Holy Spirit. Can't see him. I say this with great respect, but in, I fear at this day we've turned him into nothing more than a, than a faucet. Well, you want to have a, a, an exuberant spiritual experience? Then, then open the faucet, get the Holy Spirit, and wah, <laughs> I think the Holy Spirit is present when I say no to my sinful temptations. Amen. And I have all kinds of sinful temptations. I'm not going to tell you about it because you think, Pastor, I can't believe I'd have to you. You better believe me. Yeah. All kinds of sinful temptations. And it's the Holy Spirit says, what are you doing there? That's not who we are. You, you want to scar yourself up with that? It's the Holy Spirit that helps me say no to sin. It's the Holy Spirit that helps me nice when I need to be nice. I don't feel like being nice. You're my last nerve. Just leave me alone. The Holy Spirit says, why don't you just love this person the way I love you? That's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that I'm reading all week long. Chapter 16, 17, 18. I'm reading this whole story. And as the Holy Spirit says, look, you overlook this passage. There's a phrase right here. I'll say, well, why, why take a think of that? And I'll go back, oh my goodness. And, and the whole book, the whole passage begins to get unlocked. And, and oh, that was the Holy Spirit. It's not weird. It's very powerful. It's not crazy weird. <laughs> I get a chill and, and my body will tremor. Because I got a chill. But when the Holy Spirit speaks, there's that, oh, that's the truth. Oh, that's what I should do. Oh, that's how I should have handled that. David's got a sling. And he's got the presence of God. Yeah. Yeah. And off he goes. He has nothing of the flesh. He has no armor. He has no skilled military training. He's definitely in over his head. There's nothing here that's fleshly. That's propping him up. Yeah. He doesn't have a loud voice. He can't outshout the giant. The giant represents everything of the flesh. Yeah. Saul yeah. represents everything of the flesh. Yeah. 
David is this little vulnerable boy. I don't think he's all worked up with testosterone. He, he loves God and he knows that God is with him. So verse 45, pick up the reading there, 17 and 45. He came to the listing to hear this speech. It's a great speech. It wasn't prepared. It wasn't written and edited by somebody else. This came right from his heart spur of the moment. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I see all your stuff there. What you don't see is what I've got. And I've got Jehovah God himself. Can you, can you understand that? I'm not asking you to get nasty and mean and intimidating. That's the flesh. But stop letting the flesh intimidate you. And know. And in a loving, compassionate way say, look, look, I don't have your money. And I don't have your political background and your power. I don't have all that stuff. Let me tell you what I've got. The risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and His presence in me by the person of the Holy Spirit. I come to you in the name of the Lord God, Jehovah. You've got to love a kid like this. Verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will smite you down, and I will cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the rest of your army, which we're about to kill. I will give the bodies of those soldiers to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. You know how people know that there's a living God with us? Not because we outshouted them, we outspent them, we put on a better show than them, but because nobody loves like we love. And when we're cursed, we absorb it. And when we're smitten, we turn the other cheek. And when we're compelled to go one mile, we volunteer to go two, just so I can keep talking to you about Jesus. And at some point, people say, how do you just keep loving like this? That's my, that's my battle warfare. That's my shield and my sword. That, that's, that's what we do. We love and we serve and we smile and we give. And we support. And it melts people's hearts. They say, what is it with you? Because you come with power and money and influence and, and bribery and manipulation. No, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, Jehovah. Who loved us. And now we're loving you the way he loved us. That's what we come with. That's what we come with. And that is a powerful way. That is a powerful way. You're going down. You're going down, Goliath. You and all your people. Your day's over. He keeps saying, I will deliver you over 46 that the earth may know, 47 all this assembly may know the Lord saves not with sword and spear. The Lord doesn't save with fleshly power. 
If that were the case, they would have found someone bigger than Goliath going out there. And, you bring a knife, I get a gun. And who can out-muscle the other guy? No, that's not how God does things. God sends a little boy with a sling who has confidence in the presence of his God. Finally, verse 48. And the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. Look at this. David ran quickly. He's not trembling. He's not backing up. He's not looking for cover. Hide behind a tree. He ran quickly. And as he's running, he's loading his little sling. It, it, it's a stupid little thing. It's a couple of strands of leather. There's some kind of a pouch between the two strands. And he swings it, and he releases one end. The stone flies out, and the giant is dead. I want you to remember two experiences in your life. Most of them are, I don't know how to witness. I don't know how to talk. I don't know what to say. I'm so afraid. Remember, don't don't ignore that. Don't don't block it out of your your recollection. Be familiar with how you feel when you remember. <laughs> and then remember the few times we were more like David. But you know, I, I, why am I so afraid to bring up the name of Jesus? Why am I so reluctant to say I, I don't? I don't. I actually don't believe that. In fact, I don't think that's a. I don't think that's healthy for our culture. Why are we afraid to say that? Well, I know because we want to get mocked, and because it's 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 one against a, a million. Like I'm huh, standing against a giant. Right. Right. I know, I know, and that's why most of you are the soldiers. I ain't going up there. I ain't going up there. The king should go. He's a leader. He ain't going. I ain't going. And David says, "Ain't nobody going. Right. Ain't nobody going." We all know what someone should do. Well, be someone. Be the someone. We all know what someone should do. Well, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not in business. I'm not in politics. I'm, I'm not in upper level management. I'm not, you know, so my voice doesn't count. Somehow, God pulls reins and this little boy his voice was heard. And so, oh yeah, go ahead, kid. God bless you. Go with God. Wow. Don't you know that passage in Romans 1 where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He ran quickly. And the giant Is falling. Look at chapter 18. Skip to verse 6. Chapter 18 and verse 6. So they're coming home. And David is returning and striking down the Philistine. And women came out from all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul. King, he's still the king. He has the position. And they've got tambourines and they're singing songs of joy and musical instruments 
But they had written their lyrics to this song, and it goes like this in verse 7. Saul has struck down his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Now you would think if Paul, uh, Saul rather, Saul had any kind of sense of, of, of political savvy, he would have said stuff like, yeah, thank God for David, he saved the nation, and largely because I had enough insight to find him and pick him. Could have politically taken the credit, said it was all my idea, I, I pulled together a commission, they found him, I interviewed him and said, yeah, you're right, he's the guy. No, because Saul is a fleshly man. Saul is a weak man. Saul is a cowardly man. When he's not getting all the recognition, he gets jealous. He gets jealous because he's looking for fame. He's looking for recognition. That's why he wanted to be king. Because, well, I'm the king. When I walked in, people shut up and they bowed down. They said, oh, king. Live forever. What do you want me to do? He still has the position of king. But in the hearts of the people, David is now the king. And we think it's because he killed the giant. Well, I'm not going to eliminate that from the story. But there's something deeper going on here. The people view David as the king because David has a courageous heart. He's not a military monster. He's got a courageous heart. And you know what people will follow? Someone who has a courageous heart. In the traditional Western family structure, there was a day there was a day where everyone looked to the man of the house, to the father, to the husband, to provide some leadership. I suspect in many, 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 many homes that day has passed. But we're still looking for courage. Sometimes a family finds it in their mother. Sometimes they find it in an older sibling. Sometimes they find it in a younger sibling. But everyone's still looking for courage. Who has enough courage to say, you, you can't talk to us like that. I'm not going to burn your house down, but, but you can't do that. Everyone's looking for courage. Those people will stand behind and stand alongside and follow courage. And we should be people of courage. But don't confuse courage with intimidation. Now the flesh is about intimidation. The spirit is about that peaceful persistence. I know you may beat me, but I'll get back up and I'll keep preaching have you read the New Testament? That's the Apostle Paul. They beat him in one town. Dr. Luke would come, do their oils and herbs and whatever they did, and then heal up. They'd go to the next town and start preaching. They'd beat him down. Dr. Luke would heal him up. He'd go to the next town and keep preaching. He didn't have guards. He didn't have thugs walking with him. He didn't have body pit. He was armed with the love of Christ. And he kept preaching. He kept going. He kept preaching. He didn't quit. And he was like, I want to follow that guy. And I'm probably going to get beat with them, but I, I, I want to be with a man like that. Not intimidating with a loud voice, but indomitable, unstoppable, with a loving, courageous heart. 
I want to be around people like that. By way of my father, and now in my adult life, I have literally been around pastors my whole life. And I'm always looking for a courageous pastor who has enough wisdom to say the unpopular thing in a right way, just not angry, but to say it unashamed as it projects the love of Christ. I want to be with people like that. Yeah. I want to listen to people like that. Yeah. I want to bump up against people like that. Maybe they rub off. <laughs> I don't enjoy for a brief moment being around what the old Bible calls hirelings. They're just getting paid, hanging on to retirement. I'm looking for someone with conviction. I want someone with some courage. Not someone who's going to pick a fight. But someone who won't run when the fight comes to them. That's a Christian man. That's a Christian woman. That's a Christian adolescent child. I'm peaceful. I'm gentle. But back being Joe Corner, and I won't withhold from lovingly telling you, no, that's not right. Saul is all about the flesh. David is David because of the Spirit of God with him. And if you want to make a difference, you better bulk up with the presence of God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Read his word. Meditate. Think. Work your way to the Proverbs. Get wisdom. Get wisdom. Solomon said, get wisdom. Know how to speak in confidence and gentle, not intimidating, but gentle courage. In our ever-changing, declining culture. This is what we've been called to. Saul was jealous. Let's skip down to verse 16. <clears throat> when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe with David. Imagine. He's wearing the robe. He's got the crown. <clears throat> but he knows. That kid's got it all over me. A kid got it all over me. He is in fearful awe of David. I don't think anyone in America is in fearful awe of the Christian church. We're unacknowledged. And I'm not saying I'm going to fight for recognition. I am not going to fight for recognition. But I think as an unintentional byproduct, recognition will come if we could find our loving, courageous voice. I'm not trying to engage in cultural war. I'm avoiding culture. I'm not trying to back a political candidate. Our hope doesn't come from Washington or Trenton or Camden County or the municipal building here in this, in this township. Our hope comes from God. It, it, it only bothers me that we're not regarded because we're not regarded because of our assignments. So I'm not saying, well, let's take out full page ads and fill that in choir. No, how about you just love your neighbor? Yeah. 
How about you just serve the people that are hard to serve? How, how about you quit living for yourself and, and, and you start living for others? And at some point, do to say, what's going on in that little church on the little across the road? What's, what's going on over there? They're not the biggest church. And, and, and they don't do that as well as other people do that. And that Pastor Dave, he, he rambled all over the place, always preached too long. But them crazy people love one another. And they love our town. And they serve. And they just won't stop smiling. No matter how much I try to deal with them, they just keep talking about Jesus. Imagine if that were our reputation. That we quit playing the typical religious game. Get a better choir. Get a better youth program. Get a better pastor. Get, get everything better. And then, because we do it better, we'll draw a bigger crowd. It's like McDonald's and Burger King. How about we say, I don't know nothing about that kind of army. But I do have my sling. And I can talk to people and love people and now that I can do. Wow. Wow. I wonder if the day would come that a few souls in the world would say, now those people right there, those overworked people, got no nothing, those people have influence. It's because they've loved. They've loved one another and they've loved others outside of their circle. The world's beginning to take notice. My goodness, these people are loving and gentle and helpful. This, by the way, is a book of Acts. Great persecution was unleashed. But everywhere they were driven by persecution, they were smiling and loving and talking about Jesus and talking about Jesus and talking about Jesus. This, what I'm describing for you, is the book of Acts. And I personally, and I was congregationally, to get to the essence of the book of Acts, that I don't care what the persecution is, we will keep smiling, and we will keep loving, and we will keep serving, and we will do it joyfully, not as a pretense. We will do it because God is with us. We've been anointed by His very presence. We do have something to say. And it's this. Yeah, I used to be crazy and, and driven and, 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 and earthly and fleshly, but I found real peace, not in more stuff or better stuff. I found real peace in a relationship with the living God. Now the Bible tells us there's a wide road and a narrow road, so most people on the wide road, and they're not going to hear our message. And they will hate us to the end. But there's some who are yet to be found. And when we sing our songs and we speak our speech and, and, and we carry ourselves in the spirit, not in the flesh, like, oh, like that, that's what I've been looking for. That's what I've been looking for. And I see it in that little church. I see it in a little church. I tried that church, I tried, but I, I see that! I see that! In, in this little church. This is what it is to be anointed with the presence of God. It's not a weird thing, but it's a real thing. 
It doesn't intimidate. No overpowers it. Ah! It's gentle. And it makes people say, I, I, I want to drink out of that fountain. I want us to provide that kind of water that David brought to the battle this day. Goliath is dead. Saul is ashamed. At the end of the story, he's looking at David and saying, Wow, something about that kid. Something about that kid. And I want us to be that kid. Stand with me. In your bulletin, on the back of the bulletin, are the lyrics to this song. I want you to sing with me. Some trust in chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. The lyrics may come up on the screen. If they don't, you've got them in your book. So stand with me and sing. It's an old Steve Green song. You know that name? From like a hundred years ago. We trust in the name of the Lord God.
to stick with me another six minutes. Let's see if I make it. We're going to.